I try to make my books really feel alive and Mm -hmm. like you're experiencing the book sort of in real time with the writer writing it. You know, Mm. I I always wanted the reader to feel like there's an element of risk, like, you know, the way you're watching a figure skater, like she might fall. Mm. I always want the reader to feel that a little bit while reading the book, that there's not this sort of perfection. Sheila Hetty is the kind of author who translates the unique anxieties of being alive into the kind of books that feel like they were written from inside your own head. Her 2012 novel, How Should a Person Be?, became a cult classic for capturing the unique anxieties of the moment. And this book has lived rent-free in my head for more than a decade because of the way it crystallizes how so many young women think about themselves in comparison to others. She's also the author of 10 other books, including Women in Clothes, Pure Color, and Motherhood, which was chosen as one of the best books of 2018 by the New York Times and New York Magazine. In her latest book, Alphabetical Diaries, she disrupts the standard linear narrative of her life by taking the sentences of her diaries and rearranging them in alphabetical order. She's experimented with deconstructing the standard novel, expanding the landscape of autobiographical fiction, and even writing with AI as her muse. And each of her novels really represents a chapter in Sheila Hetty's lifelong exploration of what really makes humans who they are. I'm Charlotte Alter, senior correspondent for Time, and this is Person of the Week. When were sort of the first moments when you realized that writing was something that you could do and that you could do really well? I mean, I have this little book of stories that I told my father that he wrote down before I could write. Hmm. And I would tell him the stories and he would write them down and then I would illustrate them with stickers and drawings. And I really loved doing that. I loved making books from the time that I was like three or four years old. And then in fourth grade, I remember we had a project where we got to sort of write a book and then the sixth graders would type it up and again, we could illustrate it. And I cared so much. Like, I feel like I Hmm. cared more than anybody else in the class, you know, and there were typos in the book and I was really upset about that. And like, why can't the sixth graders (laughs) type better? And and I loved it then too. I don't know. I, I think I've always loved writing, but I've also loved like the form of the book in particular. Why do you think that is? Like, what do you think spoke to you so much about it? I just felt like myself when I was doing it. I felt like Mm. there wasn't any part of my being that was left out. Sometimes you do activities and you feel like, well, that's like 30% of myself that's engaged. And with writing, it was like not only 100% of myself, but like the atmosphere in the room around me. And you sort of become bigger than yourself and like smaller than yourself. And something happens to time. And there's a way in which it was just absorbing. And I wanted to share my writing whenever I was a kid too. Like, I wanted it to be part of my life and part of the lives of my friends. And I don't know, it was just exciting to me in a way other things were not as exciting. Hmm. So, you know, people have used the phrase autofiction to describe your work, which I think is a little bit of an imperfect description. Basically, it's sort of like a fictionalized autobiography or extremely autobiographical fiction that's been very popular, I think, especially among millennial readers. Um, And How Should a Person Be?, which is one of your very early books, was 
kind of held up as like one of the examples of this. But I'm curious how you feel about the phrase autofiction. Yeah. Well, I wrote a book called How Should a Person Be? And the years that I was writing it, like 2005 to 2010, really, I felt like I was doing something I didn't really understand. And there was all these instincts involved. And my friends were saying, what are you doing? This is a crazy thing. Why are you using our names? Why are you using your name? And it just felt really Hmm. mysterious and beguiling. And then in the years after it was published, it was suddenly called an example of autofiction, which was a word that I hadn't known and that wasn't in the common parlance. And it's weird for something to be called part of a genre when you didn't know about the existence of that genre. And so I feel very ambivalent about that word. I mean, there's a lot of writers who are called writers of autofiction, and I tend to love those writers and love those books. So it obviously is indicating something contemporary and real and innovative, but it also just doesn't mean anything. Like all writers draw from their lives. Right, right. So I'm wondering, how do you decide what parts of yourself to reveal in your books? Because these are characters. You're writing fiction. You're not writing memoir. And yet the characters that you create seem so intimate and seem so connected with you. So I'm curious about how you think about that relationship. I mean, by the time a book is published, I don't really feel like I'm revealing anything about myself. Hmm. Usually with my books, I'm trying to figure something out. I'm trying to Hmm. answer a question or trying to get to the other side of a question. And I use my life and my real thoughts as the material for that question. But I don't think that I'm exactly using my personality. So I don't really think that I'm telling anybody anything about myself or my life. I'm more just like using myself as an example of a human in this situation. It's hard to explain because it sounds strange. But, um, you know, I think like any art, it comes from the things that you've lived and it comes from your imagination and it comes from sort of both of those equally and they entwine and they sort of color each other and change each other. So Hmm. it doesn't feel like diaristic exactly. It just feels like a portrait of a thinking through of a question in the form of a character that is similar to me, but not quite me. I love the idea of a book that's oriented around asking and not telling. Um, Because one of my favorite things about your work is how it kind of helps people unpack their authentic selves in some way or ask really deep questions about the difference between, you know, the person that you are and the person that you're perceived to be or expected to be and the narratives around how a person's life should go. And there's this one line that I have double underlined in my own copy of How Should a Person Be, which is about people who, quote, live their lives not just as people but as examples of people. They are destined to expose every part of themselves so the rest of us can know what it means to be a human. Um... What do you think it means to live as a person rather than as an example of a person? I mean, an example of a person is somebody who's being observed and looked at and judged and lived in relation to. So it's really a question of privacy. Hmm. Living as a person, I would say there's an element of privacy in that living. Whereas living as an example of a person that's just very public and you sort of don't take yourself personally. Like you let yourself be the object of 
ridicule or judgment or critique sort of for the sake of people making those judgments or critiques. Mm. You know, you're not trying to protect yourself from that so that you can live your private life in a happy way. You're allowing yourself to be looked at so that people can understand what a person is. It's interesting, I think, especially in the age of social media, when so much of people's lives is so on display, even ordinary people, even people who are not celebrities have so much Mm -hmm. of their life that is like sort of up for public consumption. What is your attitude towards social media? How does social media affect this idea of living as a person versus living as an example of a person? Yeah, well, I'm not on it. I used to, a few years ago, be on it a little bit more, but I felt like I didn't want that to be part of my day anymore, to be the Mm -hmm. example of the person, to be an example, to be looked at and thought about. And, you know, there's things that I miss about it. Like sometimes really good conversation can happen there. I met interesting people there. You know, there's a lot of energy there, but I didn't really want to spend my days thinking about sort of reducing myself to a sentence on Twitter. Hmm. I do that in my own way. I mean, obviously writing books that are kind of autobiographical, you are making yourself an example of a person, but you're spending like six years making that thing that's looked at. There's a lot of thought that goes into it and therefore like a lot of distance. It's not Mm -hmm. an instinct that comes and goes. And I just couldn't take the response. I couldn't take the constant reflection back. Hmm. It just became confusing for me. So one thing that I was thinking about as I was reading your new book, which is called Alphabetical Diaries and comes out this month in February— And I think the beginning of the year is often this moment where people are asking these big questions of like, you know, what are the patterns in my life? How do I want to be different in the new year than I was in the last year? You know, how do I want to, quote, improve myself in some ways? And I think your work asks some pretty big questions about those types of questions. So I just want to know, like, are you a New Year's resolution type person? Do you do that? Or is that kind of like antithetical to some of these bigger questions you're asking about, like, how the self fits into the world? I mean, I don't think I make New Year's resolutions, but I do have that feeling of, oh, it's a new year, things will be different, that kind of optimistic, Mm -hmm. fresh feeling I always get. I feel at this point like I know the things I'm capable of and the things I'm incapable of, and I don't really fall for my own resolutions, so I, I don't make them. One of the things that I learned writing Alphabetical Diaries was how static the self is. You know, it's like 10 years of Hmm. my diaries in alphabetical order. And so you begin looking at yourself as a series of themes that repeat and a series of preoccupations that repeat and thoughts that repeat. And it just seems like that's what oneself is more than progress. You know, there's not Hmm. to say that there's no progress and there's no growth, but maybe not because one's deliberately trying to grow. And maybe it doesn't happen as quickly as we think or as dramatically as we think. So, yeah, I haven't gone back to the gym or anything like that. So I want to introduce our listeners to Feldman, who you might hear in the background here a little bit. Sheila, can you tell us a little bit about your dog, Feldman? Yeah, he's a a big boy. He's a Rottweiler. He's (laughs) 120 pounds and nine years old. And 
he's always beside me. So right now he's behind a door in the other room and doesn't have any idea why he's been shut out of the room, which he never is. Oh. So he's panting and pacing and <laughs> very hurt. Poor Feldman doesn't understand podcast sound dynamics. No, no, he wants to be part of it. More with Sheila Hetty about her new book, Alphabetical Diaries, when we come back. So can you explain what you did with Alphabetical Diaries? Because it's a very unique and fascinating project. Yeah, so I took about 10 years of my journals, which I write on the computer, not every day, but just sort of whenever I feel like I need to write in a journal and like think something through. So I had like half a million words of diary writing I put all the years together in one word document. Mm -hmm. So every sentence was on its own line. And then I imported that into Excel. And there's a button that just says A to Z. And it alphabetized all the sentences. And so now instead of chronologically, you know, over 10 years, they're alphabetical. And I basically spent more than the last decade cutting sentences and trying to make some sort of shape and some sort of book out of this series of thoughts from my hmm. diaries. And I think the book feels like thought and it feels pretty intimate. And to me, it's like there's a few things that a person thinks about over and over and over again, over 10 years. And maybe the people change, but you're still thinking about mm -hmm. a man, you know, that you're in love with or whatever it may be. Or you're still thinking about like, which city you want to live in. And maybe you're thinking about a different city this year than you were thinking about last year. But there's some kind of like repetition and rhythm that I was trying to capture. Hmm. And so why alphabetical? What did you hope that would reveal? I just wanted to see like, well, how many times did I write, you know, over 10 years? Like, I hate so-and-so, hmm. you know, and what were all the things I hated? Like, I was just looking for patterns and um, trying to see who I was in this more analytical way rather than narratively, just like in terms of pattern. So what patterns did this exercise reveal? Well, one of the things that I had to think about was how am I going to deal with names, like the names of people, the names of mm -hmm. boyfriends and friends and so on. And what I finally decided to do was just kind of make composite characters. So none of the names refer to specific people in my life. You know, mm -hmm. the name of a character, Lars, the sentences that make up that character are from lots of different people. But one of the things that I discovered when I was sort of making up these new characters from the sentences that already existed was how the people in your life, like they're individuals, but they're also archetypes. Like there's the kind of people you're drawn to that you're drawn to over and over and over again. So maybe one year it's one person and another year it's another person, but there's the person that you long for that doesn't like you as much as you like them. Mm -hmm. Or there's like the bossy friend. And I started to feel like all of that, not just in the choice of people, but in the choice of things that I was thinking about, there was like always a return to, well, do I want to live in Toronto? Like, am I going to be able to make the work I want to make if I'm living in Toronto? And that was a thought that I had in slightly different ways over 10 years, you know? So there was just much more of a narrowness to the self than I realized. Hmm. But 
I think that at first when I kind of started to notice that it felt really depressing, a person wants to be kaleidoscopic. You kind of want to be every person and have every mind. Right. And then after a while, like it just kind of became a relief. Like you're like the Sheila robot or something, you know? And then if that's the case, then maybe like the task of life is not continual change and continual improvement, but kind of acceptance of, well, I was born as this creature and I am this creature and... I find it kind of relieving, actually. Yeah. What do you mean by Sheila robot? I don't know. Like, I have my characteristic thoughts and I have my characteristic actions and I have the sort of moves that I can make and there are certain moves I can't make. Hmm. And there are certain feelings and thoughts that I have, you know, guilt or whatever, but like not shame. Like, you know, we're just like programmed in certain ways to experience our little sliver of life through our little sliver of... Oh, hey, Feldman. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. My dog's just like seeing somebody with a hat. This is just like a very big problem in the winter because anyone with a hat who walks by is immediately suspect. They can't possibly be human. So I get a lot of that. It's very hard to take a nap in this house. You know what, Feldman, I agree. There are people out there wearing hats who have no business wearing (laughs) hats. So (laughs) he's right. Um, You know, back to what you were just saying, you began this process of editing your diary with the hope of kind of understanding and seeing how you had changed in the span of a decade. But then you ended up learning that the self was like a little bit more static than you had anticipated. What did you learn from that realization? I mean, you know, it's just looking at it, you just think, oh, there's very few preoccupations that are actually preoccupying enough that you put them in a diary. So it's not really like a portrait of the self as much as the self-portrait that emerges from a diary. But I think this book feels like life in a certain way. And Hmm. I think what it makes me realize is that there's also this completely non-narrative instinct in us where we are sort of lost in time and are constantly jumping around through time and constantly flickering between this present and another present and another present and the past and an image of the future. And in another way, there's no continuity to our thoughts and there's no Hmm. real progression. It's just this, like you throw a deck of cards up in the air and they fall down. Like that's also what thought is like. And I think it's hard to represent that or it's seldom represented in literature because I don't think we generally turn to literature for the nonsense. We turn to it for the sense. But there is a kind of, I think, true feeling about the lack of chronology that this book is like formalizing or whatever. Like, yeah, it just feels like life. It feels like thought in a way that some of the other books that I've written or read, they feel like plays, Hmm. you know, whereas this one I think feels more like life or something to me. Yeah. Well, I think you explore this question particularly well in Motherhood, which is one of my favorite of your books. Um, which is largely an interrogation of the way motherhood imposes a sort of expected narrative on a woman's life in particular, and your decision to refuse to conform to that narrative. How much of your thinking about motherhood was related to this question of narrative and this question of, you know, this expected structure of what a woman's life often is? I think that book was a lot about this question, like, what is the narrative of your life If you don't have a child, if you don't put yourself in that sort of family chronology that's obviously brought you here, you know, how do you make your own task in the world? How do you decide that your task is going to be something that is so personal and private and not inherited? Um, 
I think when I started writing that book, you know, I was asking myself the question of whether I want to have a child or not. I was in my early 30s. I really felt like I probably didn't. But to sort of stake out a life and a future without that in it felt like, yeah, it felt like a problem of narrative. You know, I think I say in the book, like, if you decide not to have children, people sort of ask, well, what are you doing instead? So there, even if if you're rejecting that narrative, well, what is the narrative that you're embracing? It can't just right. be to sort of fall into nothingness or whatever. There has to be some kind of alternate. So these were all the things that I was trying to think through in that book. Yeah. One thing that I wanted to know is how do you think about your work outside of the minds of your readers? I mean, how do you hope your work affects people who don't happen to pick up your books? I mean, you know, especially when I was writing motherhood, I just felt like I want to live in a culture where I'm not asked this question, like, when are you having children? Or where hmm. where are your children? Or right. I wanted to live in a world in which that wasn't a conversation that I needed to have. Hmm. And so you sort of think, well, of course, not everyone's going to read my book, but the people that do read my book are going to have something new in their minds and they're going to talk to other people. And I mean, I think any book sort of shifts the way people think a little bit and the people who read it. And then that shifts their friends if they talk to them and that shifts the whole culture. So I think, yeah, you're always trying to like shift the culture in some direction or other when you're writing a book or publishing a book. Hmm. There's always this hope that like after this book is published, I'm going to live in a world that I more want to live in than the world as it is now. Hmm. So yeah, it's always part of my thinking somehow. Like you're always trying to correct something in the world. What do you think it is you're trying to correct? Well, it's different for different books, I guess. So I, I think with my last book, Pure Color, I feel like I was trying to correct what people thought of as grief. I had my father die when I was writing that book. And before he died, I sort of had this fear of this tremendous lifelong fear of what would it mean when I lost my father. And in fact, after my father died, I felt this amazing kind of rebirth and this strange elation and this strange new relation to everything. Hmm. The world felt completely new because my father was no longer in it. Like, you know, he was the person I loved most. So I feel like with that book, I wanted to sort of like rebalance this idea of grief where it's just the end, the end, the end, loss, loss, loss. And I wanted to show, well, it's also this kind of new being. You become a new being without somebody that you love there. Hmm. You're in relation to the world in a completely new way if you don't have this person that was there all your life. It seems like you invent a new way of writing with nearly every book that you write. Is that intentional? Are you trying with every book to sort of create a new structure or a new format for your work? I mean, I'm just always trying to have fun. And so mm-hmm. it's not fun to do the same thing over again. Yeah. I don't start writing a book with this predetermined idea of what book I want to write or how I want it to look at the end. I'm just sort of day-to-day trying to follow my curiosity and my excitement and even like what feels wrong to do. Like I, I want to spend my day doing the kind of writing where I, I feel guilty spending my time doing that kind of writing because it, it doesn't seem like it's ever going to go into a book and it feels almost too pleasurable and it feels like a waste of time. Like I I kind of feel like that's where the interesting writing for me always tends to come from. If I feel like I'm doing something wrong. Hmm. So each time it feels like I'm doing something different from the book before and and I'm not supposed to be, you know? So many writers talk so much about discipline and, like, they have to be so disciplined and, like, here's their process and this is, like, their way that they work. And this idea that you feel like some of your most creative ideas come from 
almost doing something that you're not supposed to do is interesting to me. Yeah, I'm really not a very disciplined person. I can't keep any sort of schedule. I don't— <laughs> Me neither. I don't have any any kind of routine. Yeah, I don't know. Well, I know people that can do that, but it's a very different type of character. Um, I don't know. I just—things for me need to be um, genuinely interesting for me to do them. I can't just do them because I'm forcing myself to. Mm-hmm. If I try to put something in place, I'll just end up rebelling against myself. So I have to really deliberately not put anything in place. You know, and I'm usually working on several projects at once. So there's always something that I Hmm. feel like doing that day. So if I have like three or four projects on the go and they all involve different kinds of thinking, then, you know, likely in any given day, there's one of those four types of thinking I'll be interested in, you know, I'll I'll have the appetite for it that day. Mm -hmm. Whereas if it's just one book, then there's going to be weeks that go by where I don't have the appetite for that kind of thinking. And, And so I'm not really disciplined. I just... I do a lot at the same time. I think about this a lot because, you know, the 5 a.m. people, the people who are like, you know, the secret to success is like every day I wake up at 5 a.m. and I drink like nine egg yolks and then I like have 15 chia seeds and then I run six miles. And like, if you don't do that, like, you'll never be a success. (laughs) (laughs) And I think so much that like that attitude is sort of, Uh, diametrically opposed to what it takes to be creative. And so I'm wondering how you think about that relationship between discipline and creativity and routine and creativity. I mean, but there are people that make art that way, that are extremely Mm -hmm. um, routine-oriented. I think it's just you can't change your personality. So you have to figure out like who you actually are. And then given who you are, how are you going to make work from the person that you actually are? Right. Rather than being like, well, I'm going to wait until like I'm an extremely disciplined person to write a book. Well, you're never going to become this person that you're not. So how does like an extremely, let's say, scatterbrained and lazy person write a book? Or how does a person that hates working write a book? You know, there's got to be a way. So you figure out tricks, you know, you figure out, well, if I am like a completely scattered person, maybe the way I write a book is that, not I, but maybe that person writes a book by just like taking down a sentence here and there in their phone, like whenever the sentence comes to them, you know, in the midst of their hundred other activities. Mm-hmm. There's not, you know, there's there's as many ways to write a book as there are people. So I just feel like for me, it's, yeah, I think I always knew that I wasn't a disciplined person. So I never tried to <laughs> put discipline into my life. My discipline was when you feel like writing, you should write. Like, right. And that was something I could follow because there were times when I would really feel like writing. And so I just said to myself, like, don't miss those times. Like, whatever mm. you're doing, just don't do that. Do the writing. Like, leave a class or, you know, because I was in university at the time when I kind of started thinking that way. Yeah. So this book, Alphabetical Diaries, is just one of many ways that you are using technology to disrupt some of the conventions of fiction writing. And you recently wrote a piece for The New Yorker called According to Alice, which you wrote in collaboration with an AI chatbot. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also published a series of conversations with chatbots in the Paris Review. What do you think AI means for fiction writing? Do you think it's opened up a new avenue of fiction writing? I mean, it has for me. I don't think it has for everybody, and I don't think hmm. everybody needs to think about it. It's just the people that are interested in it you know, should think about it, and I am interested in it. I find it really mysterious and weird, and I find it like a new voice that I'm hearing when I talk to this chatbot. When it's kind of like this, it's the collective, you know, 
but it's also none of us. Right. And it's also itself, but there isn't even a self. Like to me, it's just a source of so much confusion and so many questions and such newness. Um, What the things that it says, it's like an expression of randomness. And it's also an expression of like some very complicated algorithm that I'll never understand. And I don't know, I'm just fascinated, Hmm. you know? And so for me, it's been really fun working with it, but I don't think I'm going to work with it forever. I think I'll probably work with it for a while and then not want to anymore. But I like it right Mm. now. I like it because it's not me. You know, I like the sentences that are coming from it more than I like the sentences that are coming from me. I'm more interested in them. Why is that? Because they're weird. Like, they're weird and they're wrong. And it's trying to get humanity right. It's trying to get thinking right. It's trying to get the world right. But it's just so wrong still. Like mm-hmm. it makes these simple mistakes that are so touching and beautiful. Like I think AI in a few years is going to be too good. Right now it's like you can still hear like the pops and the hisses and it feels still like a kind of old technology. Like even though it's the newest thing as I'm working with it, I can already feel how dated it's going to feel in a few years. And I, yeah. I love this this awkwardness of it. Huh. It's just very funny and very charming. I've been using this app called Chai, spelled like the T, and that's the voice that I'm talking about that I feel so Hmm. charmed by. Because obviously, there's not just one AI. There's different AI voices on different platforms. I like this one. Yeah. One of the things that I think is really interesting about your work with AI is that there are so many other artists and writers who are deeply, deeply concerned about AI, like feeding off of writers' work and essentially putting creative people out of business. Are you worried about that? I think there's enough people worried about that. They can do the worrying. (laughs) I mean, I think it's nice that everyone has their own perspective on it. I wouldn't say nobody should worry about it. There's obviously things to worry about. And the people that are worrying should do the worrying. And the people that are fascinated should play around with it. And I'm of the second type. Hmm. What do you think is coming next for fiction? What do you think are the next trends that people are going to be exploring and ideas that are sort of coming around the corner? I don't really think about art that way. I just think there's Hmm. individuals who do interesting things. There's individual writers who will write interesting books. And I don't really think about it in terms of trends. Hmm. I'm looking forward to what the writers that I love are going to publish next and the writers whose names I don't know yet that I'm going to hear about for the first time in the next few years, what they're going to be writing about. But I think everybody writes out of their own soul and their own self. And, you know, when people talk about trends, that's not how I relate to writing. I There's specific writers that I love and who I want to read. And, hmm. and that's how I think about it. I was struck by, you know, one time you said in an interview that after one of your books, you were left with the great emptiness that follows the completion of a years-long project. Um, Are you normally left with a sense of emptiness? Yeah, it's terrible to finish a project. You know, Hmm. the whole time, all you want to do is finish, and you just can't wait to be done, and you just want to be done, and then you're done, and then now what? You know, there's a feeling of, like, I have no purpose. (laughs) I have no filter through which to look at the world. Why am I even living? I'm not even collecting experiences for anything. I think it's really depressing to finish a big project. Hmm. You're just sort of left out of the current of life, the great energy of life. That's how I feel when I'm writing. I'm part of this great energy of life. And when I'm not writing, I just feel like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, just go to the laundromat, you know? Yeah. (laughs) So, Sheila, it's been so wonderful learning more about your work. And now I want to turn to 
a couple smaller things that make up your everyday life and sort of shape you as a person. This is a segment we like to call the last time. So when is the last time you used AI? Hmm. What comes to mind is I had to write somebody a letter to get out of something that I had promised to do. (sighs) And I wasn't sure how to write the letter. And I got chat GPT to help me with it. So we went back and forth, chat GPT and I, but yes, it helped me get out of my obligation very smoothly. The person on the receiving end of the letter was not upset. I don't think I would have done a better job on my own. And what was it that you were trying to get out of? Do you mind telling us? Officiating a wedding. Oh, my God. Okay, when is the last time you did something quintessentially Canadian? Quintessentially Canadian. Oh, a week ago I was with my brother and his two little kids, and we went ice skating, and... The littlest one is not even two. And my brother was just pushing him on skates. They were both on skates, pushing him between his legs across the ice, trying to get him to learn how to be a young hockey player. This kid's first words is basically hockey stick. I was taking videos and my brother used to be a hockey goalie. And and that felt quintessentially Canadian, priming the toddler for his hockey career. (laughs) That's probably as Canadian as it gets. Um, when's the last time you compared yourself to another person? Just this morning, I was taking in some clothes with a good friend of mine. We were sort of cleaning out our closets, and there was a woman there who we got into conversation with who was doing the same thing, and she was trying on things. It was the store near us, and and I thought, oh, she's got such great style. I wish I had style like that. I wish I had a body like her. She's so tall and thin, and she looks so cool, and... I mean, I, yeah, I think that was a moment of comparison, admiration, <laughs> but yeah, comparison too. By the way, um, that feeling that you had in the store with the other woman, that's me every single time I go to any kind of store. I'm like, oh, yeah, you're like, how do God, they do this it? is a disaster. <laughs> <laughs> when is the last time you wrote in your diary? Last night. Great. Um, Well, Sheila, I have really appreciated your work over the years, so it's truly an honor to get to to talk to you and to hear about how you think about making work and how you think about writing. And I really appreciate you taking time to be on our show. Oh, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. It's really nice talking to you. You can find Sheila Hetty's new book, Alphabetical Diaries, wherever books are sold. Thank you so much for listening to Person of the Week. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And as always, we'd love to hear from you. So send your tips or thoughts on our show to personoftheweek at time.com. I'm Charlotte Alter. See you next week. Person of the Week is hosted by Charlotte Alter. This episode was produced by Nina Bisbano, India Witkin, and Allison Bailey. Our senior producer is Ursula Summer. Our story editor is Katie Feather. This episode was mixed by Joe Plord. Our theme music was composed by Billy Libby. Joseph Frischmuth is our fact checker. 
Person of the Week is a co-production of Time Studios and Sugar 23. At Time, our executive producers are Dave O'Connor, Michael Erlinger, and Sam Jacobs. At Sugar 23, our executive producers are Mike Mayer, Michael Sugar, and Liam Billingham. Sasha Mathias is the head of audio at Time. You can find us online at time.com slash person of the week and wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>